You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains, to whose elders, past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Rachel Lofthouse. Rachel is Professor of Teacher Education at the Carnegie School of Education at Leeds Beckett University, and the Director of Collective Ed, the Centre for Mentoring, Coaching, and Professional Learning. She's been an educator for more than 30 years, including as a geography teacher, a teacher educator, and a researcher. Her research focuses on professional learning, especially how teachers learn and how they can be supported to put that learning into practice. Rachel has introduced me to concepts such as semantic space and chain reaction conversations, and we've presented adjacently and together at conferences such as the Australian National Coaching in Education Conference and the International Congress for School Effectiveness and Improvement. Welcome, Rachel. Oh, thank you for having me, Deborah. Oh, pleasure to see you. So we'll start the conversation and your, I don't know if it's a life's work, but certainly years and years of work has been around mentoring and coaching in education spaces. So maybe we just start by laying the groundwork for what do we mean when we're talking about mentoring and coaching and why is it important in education, do you think? These are good questions and I think my understanding of them inevitably is continuing to evolve. I think the reason we need both is because they provide a unique opportunity to create the personalised and individualised element of professional learning and support. And they take into regard the context that an individual is working in, both the particular context, the time context, but also that more wide social and policy context that they're in. But it allows an individual to respond uniquely and as an emerging or a consolidating professional in that space. And I do think that coaching and mentoring therefore create that real sense of the difference an individual can make, the value that we offer them and regard them in as a professional, and that sense of emerging agency that they generate over time in that space. So I think it's important that we offer these. The difference between the two, I think we used mentoring when an individual was often moving into a new professional role, perhaps because they joined a new new organisation, therefore they were being mentored to support their work in that new organisation, or perhaps they were joining the profession for the first time. They were moving through a teacher education programme, moving into their first role as a teacher, or perhaps they were becoming a leader for the first time and it was useful to have a mentor. With the mentor being somebody who has direct and relatively current experience of the nature of the job and the context in which the individual will be working, who can offer a a conversation that helps them to make sense of all those experiences and point them in certain directions, give them feedback, give them advice, but do so in a way that's sensitive and well positioned for that individual in that context. But I think it's often about that sense of the individual understanding how to meet the expectations of others in that new role. That can be formalised because there are a series of professional standards that they demonstrate in their meeting, perhaps in their training uh, programme, or because, you know, the context they're in has some particular needs and expectations that they need to make sense of and learn to work within and thrive within. 
I think the difference between that and coaching is that coaching is often less about what the organisation or the particular role is expecting and demanding of somebody and more about what the individual or how the individual is responding to that and their questions and their needs and their drivers and their motivations coming to the fore. So I think with coaching, it's less about the framing of the professional learning experience by the context, and it's more about the individual. It doesn't mean that the context is irrelevant, but I think mentoring is contained more within a context. Lots in there about mentoring and coaching as part of a kind of collaborative practice and a a sort of intentional conversation that meets the needs of the individual. And as you were talking about that personalization or individualization of learning, I was thinking about one of the findings in my PhD was around this idea of differentiated learning for adults, I suppose, that sort of more one size fits one or a range of options for people depending on their need. And some of what you were talking about there with mentoring and coaching is about the need of the person in the particular moment that they're in, uh, whether that is advice uh, or whether that is a bit more self-driven in terms of that conversation. Yeah, and I, I like the word intentional. In fact, I think I prefer it to the idea of a managed conversation. Uh, but I think if you have an intentional conversation, it is framed by an understanding of the situation and the individuals, and it's deliberate. You know, it, it might happen because it's in a schedule, or it might happen because somebody seeks it out in a particular moment. But it it, it is a deliberate act. And whether you are the mentor or the mentee, the coach or the coachee, you are deliberately coming into that space to create that moment of sense-making, perhaps is a good way of looking at it as well, sense-making. And the conversation that allows for sense-making often connects us to the values that we hold, but it also needs to connect us to the situation that we're in. And it may be that in that moment, a decision is reached But it's just as likely that the the sense making that goes on in that moment leads to better decisions down the line. So it's not necessarily a self-contained conversation where you can easily generate meaningful targets, for example. But it is a conversation that makes a difference. And I think that's what brings people back into those spaces because they can see how those conversations, which are fundamental in both coaching and mentoring, do help them to make a difference. And that's because of the their ability to make good decisions, which then have an impact on their actions, which change outcomes. I'm remembering a piece of research by Boyatzis and Jack that I read some time ago, which, which was a bit of a way into buying coaching, I suppose, for me, because it talked about the fact that it wasn't necessarily in the conversation. Yes, there was areas of the brain that lit up during the conversation, but that that continued to happen for a week after a conversation. So as you say, you might walk out of the conversation thinking, oh, you know, I haven't come to a conclusion here, but the thinking continues beyond that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we have to believe that to be the case. And I think it's important to recognise that you don't have to nail everything. Otherwise, the the conversation itself can feel quite relentless and quite punishing, as opposed to actually an open space in which thinking thrives. And you talked early on in this conversation about value, that this is a way to value the individual. And I think there's something about naming the conversation, a mentoring or coaching conversation, having a mentor or a coach with you and investing time, you investing the time and the mentor or the coach investing time with you or alongside you that gives people that value. It's 
it's hard to find or to make or to structure that time. It's not something that happens by accident, I wouldn't imagine. No, I think that's the greatest challenge, isn't it? If we can see that something has potential benefit, we then have to weigh up that potential benefit against the resource that's available, including time, the skilled practitioners, and work out whether investing the time in that way brings the best value for that person in that moment. And it is very challenging when we don't have all of the resources that we might want to have in education. So where do you think the best use of mentoring and coaching in education is? I know that often it's used for teachers in terms of their practice. Sometimes it's used for leaders in their practice. Some people use an approach like that with students, even with parents. You've been focused on teachers. Is that where you think it's got its most value? It's probably a judgment that I'm not really qualified to make. And and in many ways, I I worry a lot that we we tend to put people into groups and silos and cohorts and we think, okay, because you're in that group, you will value from X. But if you're in a different group, you you would gain value from Y. And I'm not sure that's always very helpful. I think something... Uh, admittedly, when we're leading and managing organisations, we have to make decisions around cohorts, around uh, you know individuals within those cohorts. I think there's something about recognising the moment in somebody's professional journey, if they're a teacher or a leader, um, or recognising, um, for example, with a child or a parent, that now is a moment where there's some fertile ground. And if we've got some resource that we can deploy, which we might allocate to coaching and mentoring, it will work because now is the moment, as opposed to because you you hit a series of kind of cohort criteria, which may or may not actually mean that this is a really um, appropriate time for you to engage in what can be both very motivating and very you know, rich conversations or rich rich moments of learning, but it can also create a significant amount of challenge and tension and you've got to balance both. We think about mentoring and coaching often as, well, this is a support and what you talked earlier about offering it, that idea of the opting in and the, it being offered rather than it being, here's something that you must do because we know it will be good for you. But if we think about that idea of the challenge in the conversation, how do you know where to hit that, when to challenge someone in a mentoring or coaching conversation or when for it to be more of a supportive conversation? There are some really critical skills. And let's think about coaching specifically for a, a minute. If we don't start with being really opening to listening and hearing the other person, and I mean, these are kind of classic, almost cliches, you know, we don't listen just to respond with the next question on a script. We listen because we want to hear something from them which will indicate to us how their identity is forming or how they perceive the challenge, which may not be the same as how we as a coach perceive the challenge. We need to resist kind of jumping in with quick responses and answers because if what we actually need to hear is the story um, we need to hear the the circumstances that they find themselves in. We need to hear their understanding of those circumstances. We need to hear how those circumstances make them feel, as well as the types of competencies, knowledge and understanding that they already have that help them to meet those circumstances. And unless we really open ourselves out to listening, we can't really understand whether somebody is ready to, um, if you like, be pushed a little bit or to be provoked a little bit. And it's not pushing and provoking to deliberately create stress and strain, but it is 
to create that moment of cognitive dissonance, for example, where we may invite somebody to recognize that the same situation, but from a different perspective, creates a different perception of the situation. It might, therefore, by joining different perceptions together, allow a different resolution to to emerge. But you, you can't really do any of that unless you become a really thoughtful, careful listener. And I'm going to be honest and say that there are very few teachers and leaders who are really primed to be very good listeners because we work in these time slots with groups of children and young people or we work in this management frame as leaders. It's just very difficult for us to train ourselves out of the urgency of response. So, But we have to do that, I think, if we're going to be a good coach. I ran a coaching workshop, like a very brief introductory workshop around coaching, taking a coaching approach to conversations with colleagues for some leaders at my school. And one of them pointed out how hard it was to actively listen Mm -hmm. and to do, as you say, and resist the urgency to respond, to resist uh, telling or helping or asking things for yourself rather than being in service of that other person. And there was a bit of reflection around the room of that we're not practiced in that necessarily and that it can feel very difficult. And actually, while you might look like you're not doing very much when you're coaching because you're listening, there's a whole lot going on both cognitively and probably emotionally self-regulation-wise internally when you're doing that, especially maybe before it becomes a practice. Yes, and it it does help to have some principles that you go by. So I'm really enjoying at the moment working with a colleague and doctoral student, so she she fits into both categories, who is looking at the work of Nancy Klein, the thinking environment. Now, lots of people working in coaching have a familiarity with Nancy Klein's work, but she's currently running um, a year-long program, a pilot program for education practitioners, which is really giving them this in-depth and sustained opportunity to recognise the significance of the 10 components of the thinking environment and to to work out how by combining them together they do make a significant difference to the way in which we listen the resistance that we need to stop ourselves interrupting you know all of those components help us uh, to think about to what extent am I creating a situation in which the other person feels at ease so that what I'm listening to has not come out of their sense of urgency to respond but is is really thoughtfully recognised and articulated because they feel at ease enough to do that, to take their time. So, it, you know, when we're thinking about coaching and mentoring, we, we think about active listening. We think about, as you say, how how that can be a challenge, uh, what, what those kind of elements are. But I think what I love about the Nancy Klein work is it takes it to another level it, and it recognises this multi-dimensional space that we're trying to create, which from the outside almost looks like nothing, because as you say, we're, we're paying as much attention as we can. We're trying to create this really felt space in which another person can think and share their thoughts, but it actually is very, very complex to do. But it's such a beautiful thing to do when you get it right. So the So the learning from those sorts of um, programs, that kind of acknowledgement of all of those elements, 
is hard won, but is very, very valuable. And I'm by no means perfect. I don't claim to be a coach. You know, I don't claim to have a set of skills which always get me in the right place at the right time to do that work. But I love thinking about what it would mean, what it does mean to bring all these things together. And you talked before about the fact that these conversations help us to make better decisions when we're in and then out of the conversation. And often it's about solving problems of practice or um, making sound professional judgments. And I know that you're really passionate about teacher expertise and trusting teacher professional judgment. Do you want to talk a little bit about either of those things, either teacher professional judgment and trust in expertise and or how coaching and mentoring can support that? Well, let's take a concrete example. Let's take an example of working with a group of children who inevitably will have a diverse set of needs, whichever group of children we bring together. They are not clones of each other and they don't meet us in the same way. They don't meet the curriculum in the same way. They don't respond to each other in the same way as each other. So we have to recognise them as a set of diverse individuals. And I think that as teachers, we have to have the courage that we are able to meet meet their needs, not necessarily in isolation of anybody else, but because we draw on the skills and expertise of others to help to shape our practices with that group of children or young people. But if we if we walk into a space uh, with a group of children and feel unlikely to meet their needs or anxious about the challenges that their needs will bring or believe wholeheartedly that the curriculum is enough you know that regardless of who I'm working with if the curriculum is well enough crafted it will do the job if we kind of walk into that space with that set of either certainties or overwhelming anxieties we are unlikely to be able to use our professional skills, our expertise, our knowledge and our judgment to best effect. So how does coaching help? Well, I think coaching creates that space in which we, and we've used the word already, where we make meaning or we sense make. So it allows us to step outside of that moment of urgent response to work through with another individual what it is that we're seeing, experiencing, what it is that we know that we need to draw upon with more consciousness, if you like, as opposed to, you know, assume that just because we're trained in a certain thing, it will just roll out of us. You know, we actually have to recognise those kind of active elements that we need to deploy. And I think what coaching can do is it, it can work to allow us to explore the tensions that exist in that space, but also to think in advance of the ways in which the individual teacher will work with that class or work using that curriculum with that class to make most sense of it. Even when you have an example, it's quite hard out of context to explain something in such a way that people think, yeah, I get that. I can do that tomorrow. But the point being, you can't do it tomorrow. Coaching is something that is is itself a really skillful practice. And therefore, it's not a quick fix or a quick win but it can be the sort of thing that creates the opportunity for very sustained change. But what it does, I think, is it privileges the teacher as an individual decision maker and it it gives them the space to test out some of those hypotheses that they have, some of the challenges that they experience, but also to to connect together what they can and can't do and recognise where their limits end and what help they might need to seek 
but before the moment happens where it's becoming a bit of a crunch or a crisis in a classroom. It's about reconnecting teachers with a wide knowledge base through this kind of conversation, which allows them to recognise what they know and can do, but also acknowledge their limits so we can help them identify what they want to learn to do next. Mm, And there's a lot there around agency and self-awareness and time for meaningful reflection uh, with someone else. I guess the school leader part of me is thinking, okay, (laughs) if I'm in a school or if I'm in a system and I think, oh, coaching sounds like something that is a worthwhile investment and something that it's worth offering to my staff, where would someone start considering its complexities and considering its contextual specificities? You know, what what advice might you give to someone who's in an educational system or a school and thinks, how might I start on this kind of journey towards offering these this in a meaningful way to the people that are in my care? There's two routes to try and avoid, okay? I'll start with those first. And the first route is just kind of believing in the good of coaching and doing some generic training and creating space and time in the work life, work life, you know, workload packages, all the rest of it that teachers have. And just assuming that if you create the time and you've done some basic training, we can make good use of it. I think it's unlikely that that's the case. It's not to say that there won't be some moments of real value, but I don't think it's necessarily the best use of the time we have. I think the other thing to avoid is buying into an external package or program and assuming that the people who designed that program or that package are going to have created a much enough nuance within it for it to really be valuable in the context that you're in. But of course, there is value in the programs that we can buy into. They give us some scaffold, they give us some support, and there's value in offering time for something to emerge. So whilst I say avoid both, I don't mean there's no value in both. I just mean there are some pitfalls. So we have to work out how do we if we go down either route, how we might get the maximum value. I think the actual advice I would give is to be really pragmatic, to have a a proper think about where the genuine um, challenges and areas for growth and change are in the school. And for example, if you recognise that that's around a particular part of the curriculum or a particular missed opportunity in terms of pedagogy, pedagogic development because you know the practices have become perhaps narrowed or confined and we're missing an opportunity to really develop and flourish in classrooms in in other pedagogic ways or if it's around um, meeting diverse needs special educational needs for example or behavioral challenges and to identify an area where there really is a genuine opportunity for growth because it's creating a degree of challenge for quite a few um, colleagues, to then think about, okay, well, if we unpack that area and we think about what we really want to change in that aspect of school life, to recognise this combination of um, we might need some training, we might need some additional materials and resource, we we might need to reconfigure um, the workforce somewhat, so we change the ways in which people are working together or they'll change the ways that people are working with with students. And within that that change process, there may well be a value in the coaching conversations that help to um, 
trigger some of that change and then help to consolidate some of the um, outcomes. So do you see what I mean? There's a kind of, there's a thing, let me give you two examples. So one example in a school um, or set of schools, actually primary schools in in an inner city in in England, where the population uh, was first, second and third generation migrant population with perhaps 50 50 or 60 different languages spoken in the home. And in some of the schools, very few children coming from homes where English was the first language or the language typically used in the home. This is not an unusual situation. Um, you can you can try and ignore that and just roll out all the kind of typical government initiatives and all, use all the normal kind of approaches that a school might use to, to offer to that set of children an education. Or you can say, that's a really genuine, authentic situation that we are probably not fully equipped to meet as a group of teachers. So let's look at that as a fundamental component of our school ecosystem and think about how we combine together a whole host of, um, as I say, training and materials, resources, reconfiguration of the workforce and glue some of those changes together through a process of coaching. So that would be one example. And we, I saw that work when I worked with some speech and language therapists who were the people who actually brought the coaching into the space because they were bringing in a way of looking at the situation that was different to the way the teachers were looking at it because they were thinking very seriously about the underlying communication needs of that group of children and how those needs needed to be addressed in order for them to meet the curriculum if you see what I mean. So they were working with teachers in a different way, but it was a very particular form of coaching. It wasn't generic. It was. Um, it, it took about two years to really develop the model so that you could see how it was working well, but it was really thoughtfully managed and planned by the school leadership teams. Very specific. And another example, um, a project funded by the government, our government, where schools were able to bid for uh, improvement money, for a pot of money, um, around improving a particular outcome for children. And in this case, the outcome that they were seeking to improve was maths, achievement and attainment. And that fits the category of school improvement because math scores, scores on the doors, they, they kind of indicate apparently how good a school is. They're, you know, they're as good an indicator as almost anything else, but they're not the only indicator. And in that case, the money was used to employ what they first of all called lead practitioners who came in on top of, if you like, the existing workforce. But they were shared amongst 10 schools, 10 primary schools. And the focus for these lead practitioners was to work inside those schools with some lead teachers to really better understand how to improve the quality of maths education so that the maths outcomes improved. The tactic that they were using was to embed a greater metacognitive approach to teaching maths, because we know that there's a you know a, a, a valid case for metacognition as an as a way of helping children think through the curriculum, build understanding over time, learn more about themselves, so they become more ma- more mathematically confident, perhaps. Um, so they were using maths and metacognition 
and they were deploying their time. And as lead practitioners, it became a coaching model in those areas. And that's where you start to see something that is coherent, that meets the needs that the schools have identified, that deploys skills well and creates a focus. Now, you could look at both of those and say, but coaching is supposed to be driven by the individual teacher coming into that space with, if you like, a clean slate. So it's entirely their agenda. But then you can look at it as a manager and say, That's a, that, that might be an ideal in some worlds, but in our context, when we've got certain levers we need to pull, because we, we know what we need to try and do well in our setting, we know what our unique challenges are, we can still allow the teachers who are engaging with the coaches to explore their own practice, their own context, their own interests in that focus space. It doesn't have to become a, a method of drilling a teacher to work in a certain way. It becomes a rich space in which there's purpose and focus and which the coaching conversations can really contribute to the overall impact of the intended um, school change. So I think as leaders, you have to be pragmatic, uh, but you can still use coaching in a very contextual fashion and still be true to the coaching approach. And the other thing that that allows you to do is have that shared purpose as a set of professionals that is very specific to your context and then also develop that collaborative professionalism of the group where they are working with and alongside and supporting one another. And it sounds like in some instances, even across schools as well as within schools. So mm-hmm. if there's something that you acknowledge as a staff, for instance, or as a, a teaching group or as a leadership group, as a school, these are this is a challenge for us. This is something on which we want to focus. That allows people to sort of find some meaning in that as well and have some direction in terms of what that might look like within their individual conversations. Absolutely. And I still think in both of those situations, what you're doing as a leader is you're you're creating a series of opportunities and providing new resource into that space. You have to, if you want something to change, you have to find some new resource whether that means time or materials or individuals. But as an individual teacher, I still believe you have to have the choice about whether you engage with the coaching. And that can seem, again, a challenge to leaders because you kind of want to organise people and you want to believe that what you have on offer will, va- will be of value to everybody. But I think that you will get the greatest benefit when somebody feels ready to be coached in that space they can they can benefit from all the other components but when they feel ready to be coached you'll get the greatest benefit and our colleague Christian Van Neuber talks about I think it's democratic voluntary involvement that sense of of offering but having it as an Mm opt-in and over the time that I've spent in schools in which coaching was offered or required I definitely agree that the benefit comes when someone feels that it's their choice to be there and that they're getting something out of it and so they're choosing to come back and I think the other component of that dem- democracy, if you like, is that the method of coaching needs to be continually interrogated by the two people who are in that coaching partnership. And I think that the person being coached, the teacher, needs to be able to give very honest feedback to the coach. And there needs to be a shaping of the coaching experience and opportunity to the individual, as opposed to, well, you've volunteered to be coached or you've consented to be coached. and therefore you know you've got this 10-week program and you have no choice Mm. within it about how how that moves along and when you were talking about 
mentoring as people often new to a role or new to teaching or new to an environment. I also thought that relationship probably develops as well. Where at, and I remember I was thinking even my PhD supervisors probably started off mentoring and, and got into coaching as I got as I knew what I was doing more and more. And uh, as a new principal, I've had a mentor slash coach. And probably as time goes on, that relationship changes because I gain, I suppose, more of that knowledge that perhaps I didn't have before. So I think those relationships probably change over time. And so that checking in, how's this going? How's this working for people? Is this providing what we need? What might it look like differently? Because mm-hmm. um, I think over time, especially if you're in a similar uh, one relationship, that probably does need to shift. I think so. And I think the work, Trista Holwerk's work is really helpful in this. And uh, Chris Monroe, Jason Booten, they, they've worked individually and then collaboratively to think about those those relationships between mentoring and coaching, but to acknowledge that the individual relationship itself will move through time. And as you say, you know, whether you're a leader or a new teacher or a PhD student, if you are working in a viable, um, valuable relationship with another person, the reason why it remains viable and valuable is because it shifts over time. And having a conscious awareness of the dynamics of mentoring and coaching help that person offer the right thing at the right time. You've talked about some of the colleagues internationally and you you and I met, I think, originally on Education Twitter uh, and you are the Director of Collective Ed, this, this sort of centre of coaching and mentoring. You are really committed to building this kind of network and community internationally around coaching and mentoring. What do you think is the value of that, of whether that's, because I, I guess I'm, I'm moving from that idea of collaborative relationships within schools to collaborative relationships across the world, really, in terms of this kind of a space and what the value is of having people who are all contributing to the hive mind, I suppose. Well, I think it's invaluable, but I know that some people would say, well, you would say that because you've created it and you helped to sustain this network. But I currently am looking at um, data that's come from a research project, which looks very much at collective ed as an example of a rhizomatic professional learning community. So soon I should feel much more confident to talk about that. But I think the initial... Bit of Deleuze and Guattari in there, is it? Yeah. The rhizomes? (laughs) a little bit of that. But I'm interested already in what people have shared and just looking at it relatively at face value. I think there's something about creating a professional network which is deliberately non-hierarchical, where we first meet each other as equals, um, whether that's in person or online, whether that's in a close connection in, in, a, particular, in a symposium or a seminar, whether that's just actually being um, almost like an observer participant in, ev- in an event and, and being present with others. I think whilst we might always be curious about another person's role, for example, and qualifications and credibility, and I, and I, I don't think we should hide away from those things. I think acknowledging that whether you are a new coach, an experienced coach, whether you're a, a time-worn leader or somebody who's just emerging into the profession but has a kind of a, a kind of depth of commitment and enthusiasm that they want to bring to that space, acknowledging that we are all of equal importance and worth in our educational ecosystem really matters. And I think it's sometimes easier to do that outside of our um, institutional kind of hierarchical space. So I think that really makes a difference. I think we are 
very much at risk of working in silos. Everybody is in every sector, but in education, in, perhaps in particular. And I think that it's, very, I mean, it's again, it's a cliche, but kind of overcoming those silo walls is really important because educators commit so much of themselves and commit so much time to their work. And the more they commit, the more it's kind of absorbed and used. And it becomes very easy to think, well, what I need to do now is my best possible work in this place in order to meet the needs of these children. And that's absolutely true. But the best possible work in this place is not necessarily only what is being reproduced on a daily basis in that space, and which you become very familiar with, and which you start to feel um, quite strongly aligned with, if you don't, if you like, ease yourself out of that space now and again, and listen and share and think with other people. So the thinking with other people outside of the silo, I think, is is really critical. And I think that the acknowledgement that people can gain from being heard by others, having felt that sense of appreciation from others about the work they do, the thinking they're doing, uh, the impact they have, is just so critical in our education systems, which unfortunately often just seem really punishing. And in England at the moment, we've got you know, a significant piece of work being done in the inspection space because of the inquest for Ruth Perry, who unfortunately died. And the Ofsted inspection was attributed as one of the contributions to her death. And, and there's a, you know, that's unleashed rightly a kind of a will to look again at how do we hold our profession to account on behalf of children and parents and society. But it's also revealing an awful lot of siloed thinking. And I think it's it's an example of why it's really important to think outside of the silos. And so that sense of an equitable group in which the hierarchies that might exist in your normal working life don't exist, but they also help you to see things that are outside of your context that you might become quite institutionalised mm-hmm. and accepting of um, if you don't know what's going on elsewhere. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm lucky I've spent 20 odd years in an academic role or two different academic roles. I've got to go to international conferences as a result. And I know that it's been in the past, those spaces have often been the place where you just kind of, you, you find yourself explaining to people how it is in England, for example, teacher education in England. And people look at you like you're crazed. Like, how can it be like that? And you think, okay, okay, there are components. (laughs) There are components of our teacher education or teacher training space in England which do make sense. But also, the fact that you're now looking at me as if I'm crazy makes me recognise that I have to question what we do. And I've had that luxury for for more than twenty years. The vast majority of teachers and leaders don't have that. They just don't have that. So we have to find other ways to bring out those moments for them. Well, thank you, Rachel. We're coming to the end of our time together. And so I'm going to move us to uh, what I like to call the enlightening round, our final five questions. The first of which is, what is something unexpected that people might not know about you? I think from the outside, so I've, I've worked in two schools in substantive roles and two universities in a career that's now nearly 35 years long. And I'm, and that's not very many, okay? I've, and, and as you said, it, it would look as if I devoted my life to coaching and mentoring. 
And to some extent, there's a truth in that. So it almost looks like I'm a very stable uh, person. (laughs) And in many ways, I am. I like that kind of sense of place, that sense of community and that sense of purpose. But actually, underneath it all, I think I'm really restless. So I think there's a restlessness. Now, that comes out in my personal life probably more than it does evidently in my professional life. But the restlessness in my professional life is probably in this kind of way of being in those spaces. My, I'm always agitated. Agitated and, and agitating. Yeah. I'm, I, I know I'm quite a restless person. And what about something that's currently on your desk? But I am currently writing a book with Trista Holwick and Jason Booten. It's been on our combined desks and laptops and in that kind of connected space in the ether for far too long. It is on our desk. Can you tell us a little bit more about the book? Uh, Yes, I can tell you. I can't even remember the full title because we've changed it recently. And we changed it as a result of a really impactful conversation. The one time where we've all managed to get into the same physical space because we're, you know, working across um, the Atlantic. And I know that the title has learning encounters in it. And I know that we're using the notion of learning encounters as a way of conceptualising coaching, because the book is essentially about coaching. I look forward to seeing it when it, when it emerges. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. How about someone that inspires you in the work that you do? There are three women, actually, currently, and for, actually for the last few years, who I've felt very connected to and have inspired me and I will name them uh, Kathy Gunning, Paula Aliff and Suzanne Coulshaw and they're all collective ed fellows now I first met all of them actually no I had met Suzanne earlier but I first met them together in our first cohort of the postgraduate certificate of coaching and mentoring which we began prior to the pandemic but which we finished during the pandemic and The three of them are brave women and they are extraordinary professionals and they give me a huge amount of faith, really, in the power of people to make a difference in our world. And they'll make me cry. Even thinking about them makes me cry, but in a good way, in a good way. Amazing to have those people that we feel like in our corner, especially when you are Mm -hmm. agitated and agitating because there's frustrations in terms of the work that you're trying to do and the, the good that you're trying to do. That's terrific. Uh, what about one thing that you've got coming up that you're excited about? When you first think of that, you think about, well, what's coming up that's big, that's kind of, you know, it's going to really, um, you know, it's going to be novel or new. And actually, it's not that so much. It's it's little things. So I still run the postgraduate certificate in coaching and mentoring. We currently work in the online space, which is proving to be more successful than I ever imagined it could be. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. And actually, the thing, one of the things I genuinely am excited about is my monthly sessions with that group. So there are 10 people. It's not a big group. Uh, We work live online. Uh, We are joining together from, I think, four or five different countries this year. Um, So some interesting um, contexts that people are working in. And we're halfway through the course. And it's beginning to be revealed through the work what the course is allowing them to focus on and develop in their own practice. So the next few months, I think, are really exciting times. And I'm looking forward to working with them to discover what they're going to develop and explore in their settings. 
And finally, if you were to distill your current thinking about education, coaching to its essence, what thought or resource would you leave listeners with? I would call myself a humanist. And I have a bookmark from the Humanist Society that has a very short phrase on it that I think is extraordinarily powerful. And it simply says, think for yourself, act for everyone. That's a fantastic way to end our conversation tonight. Thank you so much, Rachel, for joining me on the Edu Salon. Thank you for for inviting me, Deborah. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network by giving this podcast a rating or review and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.